Osiris's production on the Osiris Podcast Network. It all rolls into one, and nothing comes for free. There's nothing you can hold. What even is life? Well, we know it's difficult. And to make matters worse, it doesn't last. Is that bad news or good news? Maybe it's both and maybe it's neither. Just take a breath, exhale, and let those thoughts evaporate, as all thoughts do. Like everything else, they're fleeting. And if everything's fleeting, that means all opportunity is in the here and now. Opportunity for joy opportunity for awareness, and opportunity for love, which is another word for compassion. God, I'm such a hippie. I really do believe this stuff, though, and I think the dead did too. But belief is ultimately not what's important here. It's more how you choose to relate to yourself and to the world around you. And that's fundamentally attitudinal. I learned this late in life, and the dead were definitely part of my education. If the thunder don't get you, the lightning will. The other part of my education comes from practicing Buddhism, which I've done for a hell of a lot longer than I've been a deadhead. Interestingly, becoming a deadhead deepened my practice. Every day, I wake up to find out. And surprise, surprise, the dead actually have many real-world connections to Buddhism, which we will talk about on this episode. But again, I'd say the heart of the relationship is attitudinal. The dead were born of the same interconnections that helped shape Buddhism in the West, like a lotus seed planted in the beat generation that blossomed in the psychedelic era. There was a developing sense in the mid 20th century that reality really wasn't necessarily what mainstream society proclaimed. Turned on by LSD, a new generation pursued liberation and bliss with often reckless abandon. Some followed gurus or rock bands to the ends of the earth. Others turned to meditation as a means of quieting their minds while expanding awareness. A lot of people in the dead family have connections to Buddhism. The band's publicist, Dennis McNally, is a longtime member of the San Francisco Zen Center. In fact, the late Shinryu Suzuki, who ran the place, was at the Human Bean back in 1967, meditating right on stage during Viola Lee Blues. Now that's some focus. Then there's Neil Cassidy and Allen Ginsberg, who the dead saw as legit gurus. Jerry's old girlfriend, Bridget Meyer, is a longtime Buddhist, and the band even financially contributed to the Naropa Institute, a Buddhist university in Boulder, Colorado. Jerry and Mountain Girl got married by a Buddhist priest, and so did Bob Weir. And Peter Monk, who co-wrote the lyrics to the Phil Lesh tune Passenger, was an actual monk. The dead are connected to Buddhism on a metaphysical level, too. Impermanence is going to steal your face. Interconnectedness is the eyes of the world. 
Jamming is spontaneous creativity that makes use of the moment you're actually in, an approach that Buddhists call skillful means. And listen closely to the guitar solo in Alligator from Anthem of the Sun, where Jerry quotes, First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. That's a little riff on emptiness. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Drums can't exist without space. But space and drums are ultimately non-dual. They're flip sides of the same cosmic coin. This isn't to say that shit isn't really real, as anyone who has ever stubbed their toe can tell you. Phenomena are perceived and experienced, but on close examination, you notice that they lack intrinsic self-nature. They only exist in relation to other things. Notes arise, and then they melt into a dream. This realization isn't intellectual, it's experiential. And in their own way, the dead embody it. They are authentically themselves, as ephemeral as those selves may be. I want to note that Buddhism is not escapism. In fact, it's the opposite. It's like when you're playing music, the musician aims to relate fully in the moment, because that's where the magic happens. The trick is accepting things as they are. Because when you accept the situation, you're free to respond creatively. There's no need to smother it with your ego. Jerry Garcia understood that, and it's also key to how the dead operated as an interdependent musical unit. So how do we confirm any of this? Well, Buddha would tell you to investigate for yourself. So would Jerry. This episode is called Zen of the Dead, though we don't stick to one specific Buddhist tradition. Our special guest, Chris Kelly of the Psychedelic Sangha Collective, has a background in Tibetan Buddhism, and that's also where I gravitate. But these are just definitions, meaningful only up to a point. The real idea behind all of this is to become more open and thereby more human. But humans are fucking awful, man. <laughs> That's an understandable perspective. Humans visit a lot of suffering upon one another. But it's good to remember that some humans try to do the opposite. They act out of compassion. And then there are those who point others towards finding peace within themselves. Because it's in there. You just got to poke around. No, that's wrong. Don't poke. Just be still and remember to breathe. Nobody is trying to convert anyone here. Like the dead, that's not the point of the trip. Besides, at the end of the day, there is no Buddhism. Isms are conceptual, and that's what we're trying to get past. There is no coming. There is no going. Nothing left to do but smile, smile, smile. Or maybe I'm just soft in the head. I'm sure my co-host will let me know. Eduardo, let's do this. So I see this episode as maybe the first in a series where we look at the dead through a more spiritual lens, for the lack of a better term. Finally. Yeah, right? <laughs> but I don't want to tie them to any one religious tradition because that just seems foolhardy. I do think, though, that we can look at the phenomenon of the Grateful Dead through a more spiritual lens. And that's what we're going to do here with an emphasis on Eastern spiritual practices and traditions, specifically Buddhism 
And the Grateful Dead actually do connect to the world of Buddhism in some surprising and maybe not so surprising ways. Mm -hmm. But we can start with the biggest of big pictures, which is why the dead seem to activate in people something that in many ways is like a religious experience. Yeah. Carl Jung liked to use this term numinous to describe that feeling of presence or unity that's somehow bigger than the individual. I think you alluded to this effect in a previous episode. So I'm wondering with the dead, what do you think is behind that phenomenon of expanded connectivity? You know, I've been thinking about this topic a lot. Oh, good. And you know, the sort of once every few years or something, I actually have to go to mass or something like that. Sweet. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, you get a sense in that gathering of how maybe seven or 800 years ago, the idea of combining uh, music and an olfactory sense and a sense of time and space and continuity might have really been just like overwhelming for the senses. Right. Like stained glass is a light show. Yeah. Yeah. And we all know what the incense is a stand in for, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And so I think music accompanies a lot of religious traditions for a reason. There's a reason that a lot of words are sung rather than said. Yeah. I think when you take that sort of side of it and you throw a lot of LSD in the mix, maybe. <laughs> wow, that's what they do at the mass that you go to? <laughs> it's the, the Church of Timothy Leary. Oh, man. Our Eucharist makes you taste colors. <laughs> we call this wafer window pane. <laughs> it's all starting to make sense. You know, I've personally never been drawn to organized religion, by and large, because I'm resistant to the imposition of belief systems. But I am a committed Buddhist, and I take my practice very seriously. I meditate every day. I try to adhere to the moral precepts, even though Buddhism isn't a path that seeks to limit experience. It's actually trying to undo mental conditioning that obscures the pure perception of reality. Mm. And the interesting thing is that my own Buddhist practice deepened considerably with my growing appreciation for the dead yeah. in both cultures there's an emphasis on the experiential, meaning you relate to them in your own way, even though there may be certain participation rituals. Right. Since this is only my personal observation, though, I'm curious if you've seen any comparative aspect with the dead phenomenon and other spiritual traditions or even non-spiritual traditions. Well, anytime I think a group of people convene to celebrate something, it's difficult not to end up using religious language to describe it, right? I mean, there's yeah. there's a sense of fellowship and camaraderie. Sure, like uh, fellow travelers. This idea of a wandering tribe, which harkens back to all sort of elements of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And in Buddhism, there's the idea of wandering mendicants with their beggar's bowls. Yeah, and just the very idea of going to shows constantly as a kind of ritualistic thing. Right. You know, what it does is it creates a sense of continuity in a space. Mm -hmm. The closest that we could come in Western culture to a sort of communing with the sublime. Sure. And I guess in this case, the practice is collective bliss through a shared experience, which is musical. And it's all happening inside you as an individual, but also happening to everyone else. I think it would be hard not to find something divine in that. Yeah. And I actually came across a quote from Robert Hunter where he said, I always thought there was a possible holy perspective to the Grateful Dead that what we were doing was almost sacred. Yeah. So I think they felt it, too. The interesting thing to me is it is really tempting to look at Jerry Garcia as some sort of beatific spiritual figure, but he actually shunned idol worship and would not have wanted anyone to see him as a holy man. 
And yet an actual guru, Ram Das, called him a bodhisattva, which is another Buddhist term for a spiritually advanced figure who seeks to liberate all sentient beings. Mm -hmm. And Jerry did say that if he were to consider himself in a spiritual context, he'd be a Buddhist. So I'm thinking there might be a legitimate basis for comparison here on a few levels. If there is such a thing as an American Zen, then I think its roots have to include the Grateful Dead in some yeah, way. That's my theory anyway. You know, uh, the inescapability of your conditions and also a sense of impermanence that kind of goes through it all. And so you think about the characters and like, I don't know, West L.A. fade away or, you know, I sure don't know what I'm going for, but I'm going it for sure. Right. Or, or even Black Throated Wind. Like these are songs about they're not so much about the finding as much as they are about the seeking and tolerating ambiguity, as John Perry Barlow might have said it. Exactly. Yeah. Seems really important. And the concept of not being is also really essential to their music. And I think it's a big part of Buddhism, as I understand it. You definitely nailed it. And we can maybe explore those ideas a little bit more. Two major pillars of the Buddhist outlook are impermanence and interdependence. And these concepts also seem to be present in the entire Grateful Dead phenomenon. Uh, Robert Hunter's lyrics in particular touch on those themes a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, Stella Blue comes back over and over for me with the line, there's nothing you can hold for very long. And don't get me started on the wheel, which is a very important symbol in Eastern cosmology. Mm -hmm. Eyes of the world hits at that sense of interdependence and the heart of compassion. And look, since Hunter's not on the show and doesn't like to interpret his own work, I guess we're free to assign these meanings, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Sorry, Hunter. Please come on the show. But I'm guessing you can see this. Oh, for sure. There are a lot of really powerful philosophical contradictions in the lyrics. And they're not just half-baked ideas kind of thrown out as a like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to juxtapose these two things? I think the dead were constantly fascinated by contradictions and their idea. And rather than trying to sort of go around them, they really wanted to drive into them and really make you feel them. Totally. I've called these songs Americana koans before. And I think there's something to that. In Zen Buddhism, a koan is a short, pithy statement that often contains incompatibilities or contradictions that are meant to produce a kind of cognitive dissonance in your awareness, leading you to comprehension of non-duality, mm. which is the actual state of things once you clear away the mental obscurations, so to speak. Another idea worth exploring is interdependence, which I would posit is the basis for the band's music. Yes. There's a saying in Buddhism, this is because that is, this is not because that is not. That's the jam, man. Yeah. Spontaneous, codependent arising. The music comes from somewhere. Nobody knows where. It exists for a little while and then it fades away. And the other thing is there's no ultimate destination. It doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have a final summary point. Mm -hmm. I guess you could say the music never stopped or the music never started. <laughs> wow, did I just achieve enlightenment? <laughs> you did. You did. You solved how in the middle of playing a song, the dead can also be playing no song. That's heavy, man. Well, it does connect to the idea of karma, too. People seem to think of karma as a cosmic ledger where there's punishment for bad behavior and reward for good behavior. But in actuality, it's just the expression of causes and conditions that ripen into new causes and conditions. I sometimes think about the causes and conditions that led a bunch of folkies to go electric. 
So I guess in that case, LSD is karma. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But seriously, without those conditions, the jug band, the acid tests, the beat generation influence, the Eastern spirituality, we may not even have a thing called the Grateful Dead. Does that seem at all plausible to you? It absolutely does. And I think the band would embrace that from the standpoint of, um, I think they cultivated this idea of kind of standing apart from time, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I also think that when you talk about the conditions that that create a ripeness for the band to be embraced, um, it's really interesting to me how they would sort of strip away layers of of ego. Yeah, for sure. I think in the group sense, that obviously happened in the acid test days. But Jerry Garcia, as an individual musician, also seems to have transcended his ego. And Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody in the band really held themselves up higher than the audience which is definitely different than a lot of rock and roll stars for sure Mm -hmm. i don't want to suggest that they were trying to chase higher spiritual ideals necessarily you know jerry garcia was pretty upfront about how he was doing what he did for kicks but i do think there was an honest to goodness pursuit of liberation and bliss And when we're talking about how they do that, from their musical approach to the sort of contradictions contained in the lyrics, Mm -hmm. Buddhists have a term for that, and we call it skillful means. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's the idea that you can be creative in the moment and use whatever there is at your disposal in the goal of uplifting your fellow human beings. And that to me seems like a real Jerry Garcia and Grateful Dead outlook. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the Buddhist sutras talks about a vivid, naked, free state of openness. That sounds like a dead show, right? It really does. That makes me think of David Gans on the last episode recounting that conversation with Phil about being surprised by how some song turned into Warfrat and Phil saying, yeah, we were too. (laughs) Yeah, they were just as surprised. (laughs) Right. And pleasantly so. I guess that kind of gets back to that idea of dependent origination or the fact that the musicians are gathered together and Mm -hmm. their relationships with each other in musical conversation produce these outcomes and the audience of course shares in those outcomes and plays an active role in shaping them yeah at the end of the day buddhism is concerned with the alleviation of suffering And maybe the Grateful Dead didn't alleviate humanity's suffering, but they certainly gave a lot of people a surplus of joy Mm -hmm. and probably helped folks find kindness within their own hearts, which can then be radiated outwards. Look, you don't have to ascribe an ism to it. And actually, Buddhism would tell you that ultimately there is no Buddhism. It's the way that we relate that counts. And in the dead community, there generally seems to be a lot of openness in how people relate to one another. And it's beautiful. Yeah, it is sacred. So here's something really funny. You know how in the last episode we had David Gans on? Well, proof that I am soft in the head, I completely spaced asking David if he'd let us use some of his music on the show. Well, we might have missed it last time around, but he just recorded a brand new song and said that we can actually premiere it here on Dead to Me. But before we listen to it, let's hear from David, who's going to tell us a little bit about the dependent origination of this tune called The Town. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity to debut this new song with you guys. I wrote it with Scott Guberman a couple of weeks ago out here in California. 
Scott and I have known each other for a few years. We first met in Connecticut several years ago when he was playing with a group called the Sticky Greens. Then he moved out here to become part of the music scene at Terrapin Crossroads. He called me a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, let's get together and write a song. And I'm always up for doing that. So I went over to his house. I had an idea that's been kicking around in my head literally for more than 20 years that kind of came up after Jerry Garcia passed in 95, but I never really did anything with it. So I walked in with one idea for the song, and that was the title, In the Town That Still Believes in Magic. And I had a scrap of melody for it and a couple more lines of melody. We started with that, and this is the song we came up with. And it was a sort of inspired thing. I just think of Scott as the sort of person who still believes in magic because he's having this magical life. You know, he's got this beautiful wife and a beautiful new kid, and he's out here playing Grateful Dead music with Phil Lesh and stuff, so he's kind of having a magical life, and I feel like I'm having a magical life because I married the most perfect partner I could imagine, and I get to make music for a living and do music-related stuff. So it seemed like an inspired idea to bring that to Scott, and the song that we came up with in an afternoon was quite pleasing. We got two of our favorite musicians to join us for it, Robin Sylvester on bass and Greg Anton on drums, and we did a few takes of it, settled on one that we liked, and then I finished it just yesterday in the studio with engineer Jeremy Goody. So the song is titled The Town That Still Believes in Magic, and we're basically just going to give it away with a pay-what-you-want option on Bandcamp. You're hearing a sort of podcast edit. We cut out a few minutes of the jam to make it fit into this podcast a little better. The expanded version will be available on Bandcamp, along with another jam that we did that day. So thanks for listening, everybody.
a town that still believes in magic People still buy records in the store The concert hall is filled with people listening You don't find that too often thanks to David Gans for letting us premiere his new song. I think it has a kind of Warren Zevon vibe, but with a deadish twist. I'd like to think magic can be part of our everyday awareness, and I bet our next guest has a similar outlook. Christopher Kelly is the founder and co-facilitator of Psychedelic Sangha, New York City. He received a Ph.D. in religion from Columbia University, where he studied Indo-Tibetan Buddhism with Robert A. F. Thurman. He's a part-time associate professor in religious studies at Eugene Lang College of Liberal Arts, the New School University. And you can visit Psychedelic Sangha online at psychedelicsangha.org. Don't worry, we'll put the link in the show notes. So please join me in welcoming Christopher Kelly of Psychedelic Sangha. So this podcast is basically my coming out party as a deadhead, which was kind of a later life conversion for me. So I always like to ask our guests how they got on the bus. Maybe you can fill us in on the initial circumstances of your dead awakening. Yeah, I love the way you you phrase that because I do think it is a baptismal experience and you know, we were talking uh, a bit on the phone before, and uh, you were talking about listening to the dead while working and mm-hmm. how that kind of seeped in or permeated your consciousness, and, and, and that hooked you, you know, and that is the moment. And every, every deadhead knows that moment when the music really permeates into their psyche or their subconscious and, and just latches on. Yeah. And I love that. And you know, I, I went to a couple dead shows when I was in high school. I grew up in the suburbs of New York. Right. There were plenty of prep school deadheads around me. Sure. You know, the New England scene is different from the West Coast, particularly for me growing up. We were seeing the dead in the late 80s, early 90s. We were listening to recordings from way earlier than that. So we all kind of felt like we had missed the boat, you know, like yeah, like yeah. The, the good days were over and we were just sort of getting, you know, the... the chasing uh, the fumes. Chasing the fumes, exactly. But there was also this weird sort of species of deadhead that 
was hippie, but also athletic, you know, and played on athletic teams. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think some of the folks in the band actually saw themselves that way. Probably not Jerry Garcia or Phil Lesh. Those guys seem to live in their heads a lot, but certainly Bob Weir. And I came across a quote from Mountain Girl who said, we were just interesting young people who were also athletic. And she sort of made that out to be a quintessentially American way of being. You know, it's a simple idea, but it's a really big, ideal. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a nice way of framing it. Quintessentially American. Yeah. That is, a, I think, a typically sort of American thing is to have really big ideals. I mean, so big that we wrote this thing called the Declaration of Independence, which was way more ambitious than we could actually enact. You know, we yeah. had big ideas about freedom and liberty, um, which I would argue we've not really caught up with those ideals yet on the ground. And sometimes it seems like we've conveniently misplaced them. It's hard. It's one thing to dream a big dream. It's another thing to, you know, walk the walk. And I think part of being American is also just being willing to engage in that experiment, you know? Yeah. And I think the Grateful Dead is a great American experiment. Oh, for sure. And there's also the experiment of being open and aware in a large group of people like at a dead show or even a smaller group of people like a meditation practice community. And I wanted to ask you, since this episode has to do with consciousness exploration and Buddhist meditation and study, when did you start exploring all of that? And did you ever get the sense that these worlds were more connected than maybe you'd anticipated? I mean, I was fortunate. Like I had the Grateful Dead sort of music around me growing up. It was it was literally the wallpaper uh, within my mind. I actually don't think I appreciated it. I mean, I, I don't know. When I, As I've gotten older, I have come to appreciate it more, kind of like a fine wine or something. I mean, you become yeah. more of a connoisseur as you, as you grow. And similarly with my Buddhism, I had exposure to Buddhism early on. My aunt was a hippie. Uh-huh. She fled the East Coast for Santa Barbara and quickly got on the, the Dharma bus there. And, <laughs> right. you know, it was from Santa Barbara to Kathmandu. And then wow. she was living in the foothills of the Himalayas. And she was that wacky aunt who, you know, would ditch Christmas because her guru told her, you know, she had to go do year-long retreat in the Himalayas. So oh, that is classic. She had a kind of mystical aura around her. And, right. you know, I didn't have any siblings. I was an only child. I was very drawn to her because she was the youngest of all my aunts and I really related to her and I used to love watching her do her Buddhist practice and she would, you know, she would give me books and she would talk about Buddhism, but I didn't really, you know, it's kind of like the dead, like I didn't become a connoisseur of that mm-hmm. until I got older and I started to experience suffering. And it, in a way, maybe that's the bridge with the dead as well, is like, you know, as you get older, you don't just become a connoisseur, but you, you suffer and, and your pain enables you to appreciate art, art and music, art in spirituality, you know, the art of life. Absolutely. And of course, Buddhism is fundamentally concerned with suffering, its causes, but most importantly, its alleviation. And that's accomplished through the cultivation of awareness, the understanding of interdependence, and tapping into this wellspring of compassion that enables one to respond creatively to the world around us and hopefully reduce the suffering of other beings. I think about suffering with the dead, and I look at somebody like Garcia, and he definitely suffered quite a bit. You know, in the Buddhist view, you could sort of look at the drugs and the touring situation as samsara, right? Yeah. And then I think about other things about the dead, getting back to their name, their iconography, their lyrics. 
all of that embraces or at least addresses in some way the idea of impermanence, which is another crucial concept within Buddhism. I want to look at that a little bit more with you and maybe think about how the dead's musical parables fit in all of that. I'm really stuck on the song Stella Blue, for example. The entire thing seems to be a meditation on impermanence. But there's also a line that says, it seems that all this life was just a dream. In the Vajrayana tradition in Tibetan Buddhism, there's actually an instruction to consider all phenomenon as a dream. And the understanding is that everything that we experience really does have a dreamlike quality. It comes from somewhere we don't know exactly where, and then it vanishes. So I think Robert Hunter, at least, was pretty hip to this stuff. <laughs> I mean, I do think we have natural-born mystics. And, you know, the Buddhist will tell you that because Buddhists believe in rebirth, uh, that they probably had a, a previous life where they they maybe were Buddhist and did all the contemplative work and, you know, in this life are sort of reaping the benefits by having the karma to intuit, right, in this life, to intuit um, certain fundamental truths about the nature of reality, right? meaning like impermanence, um, you know, what Buddhists would describe as interdependence and, and emptiness. Right. So I do think, you know, poets and artists, you know, whether they did that hard work in their previous lives or not, I, I don't know. I, I've not had a direct perception of rebirths. For me as a Buddhist, that's a belief that I've not yet validated. And I, I want to be honest about that. You yeah. know, I mean, I think that's actually one of the great things about Buddhism is that you're, you're being a good Buddhist when you're honest about the things that you've confirmed through direct experience. And while I think there are compelling arguments, and I love the, the narrative of rebirth, I don't know if rebirth is true. I, I really don't. Yeah, I think about that a lot myself as well. And I think it's enough to have the understanding that karma as a series of causes and conditions that ripen into other causes and conditions are sufficient for the continuation of something. Right. And I don't necessarily need a laundry list of my past lives in order to get with the concept that at that interconnected, subtle level, there really isn't anything that's permanent or has intrinsic self-existence. And to me, in deep contemplation, that awareness can allow for something like rebirth, but doesn't necessarily have to hinge on right. it. The experiential confirmation of interdependence and impermanence, that basic awareness is enough. And to touch on the concept of emptiness, you know, when you look even at the atomic level, if you examine closely enough, you find that nothing has any inherent self-nature, meaning that it only exists in a dependent relationship with something else. I think about interdependence and emptiness, and I'm like, man, that's Dark Star. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> but really, you know, the notes arise from this interdependent relationship with one another, and they're here for a while, and then they go somewhere, and we don't know where. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, emptiness or no self, as it's sometimes framed in, in you know, it depends on which boot, you know, there are lots of different Buddhisms, right? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of different Grateful Dead. Right. You know, I should self-identify, right? Like I'm coming to my understanding or worldview by way of the Tibetan tradition. So all my teachers have been Tibetans, uh, 
I've had American teachers, but they're also trained in the Tibetan traditions. Graduate school, actually, for me, was where I kind of started exploring other traditions, and I came in contact with Zen, and I started looking into Taoism uh, to understand Chinese and Japanese Buddhism better. Right. So I have a wider breadth now, and I, one of the things I've, I really appreciate from graduate school is understanding the relationship between Hinduism and Buddhism and how interconnected those traditions are yeah. and how it's very much a conversation over several thousands of years. That's right. The same Vedic tradition in India serves as the basis for Hinduism and Buddhism. And Buddhism's big innovation was to look at the Hindu concept of Atman or this soul that persists eternally. And Buddha said, no, that is empty. And even emptiness is empty. It only exists in relation to something else. So even across lifetimes of endless rebirth in the cycle of existence known as samsara, the fundamental truth of the matter is none of it has a fixed, intrinsic, permanent identity. Yeah. But the way that those teachings took shape was most certainly within the context of Hinduism. And you also had mentioned to me when we first made contact a really interesting idea that there are actually a lot of parallels between the Buddha's own time period and the types of people who were drawn to his teachings back then and the more contemporary 1960s scene that really nurtured Eastern spirituality in the United States and also gave birth to the Grateful Dead. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, actually, just when we were talking about Hinduism and Buddhism, I was thinking about that because what is so interesting about that era is, you know, there really wasn't a Buddhism in the ism sense. What there was was a small group of people. You know, it starts with five guys in the forest, right? And these guys... These guys are hippies, man. They are counterculturalists. <laughs> they are people who have tuned in, turned on, and dropped out. <laughs> For real. Some of them are definitely doing Soma. That's a fact, right? Some yeah. of them are definitely doing plant-based psychedelics. <laughs> um, all of them are doing something to alter their consciousness, right? Yeah. Some of them are meditating in the conventional sense. Some of them are engaging in extreme austerities. I mean, the Buddha famously was one of those guys. I mean, the story of the Buddha, you know, uh, written by Ashvagosha a couple hundred years after the Buddha, describes a guy who had everything, right? He was the, the son of a prince. I mean, a lot of people know the story of the Buddha. My, my telling of the story of the Buddha is a little different in that I really value the story as a metaphor, as a metaphor for everybody's spiritual journey. You know, there was a historical Buddha, sure, doesn't really even matter. Like, the, the import of the stories and the power of the metaphors, and what I mean by that is it, it tells a story. You know, Joseph Campbell talked a lot about metaphors in the context of religious myth. And, oh, you mean Joseph Campbell the deadhead. And he's a deadhead, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey Hart, like, brought him to a show, I think, right? Yeah, that's the lore. He had a whole Dionysian reading of, of the Grateful Dead experience, which I think is actually very accurate. Um, and he actually lectured on acid. A lecture on acid or a lecture on acid? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he ever took acid, but he, he did have a lecture on acid. And I think it was actually in that lecture where he'd made this connection between the psychedelic experience and the hero's journey. Yeah. And that's the same connection, I think, with the life of Buddha in that his story is the hero's journey. Right. Um, so to get back to the story, you know, Buddha, um, like a lot of people in this era, were essentially renunciating 
a certain degree of privilege and seeking out something different. They were what they were seeking out was a new idea. It was this new idea of enlightenment because previous to you know, around 500 BCE, the concept of individual enlightenment was not a thing. Yeah. The overarching view within Vedic circles was a very mechanistic view of the world that did not account for individual karma and did not account for individual enlightenment. Right, sure. So what happened that suddenly you have this infusion of individualism? And that's what is really interesting to me. And mm-hmm. You know, while we can look to the Buddhist story for great metaphors about transforming into an enlightened being, I think it actually is more interesting when we want to answer that question about like where individualism came from, to look to scholars like Richard Gombrich who have done work on what may have actually been the socioeconomical variables or, or contributions that gave way to this new generation of counterculturalists you know, like the Buddha, because it was a new generation. It was an entire generation of young people who were doing something new, and that something was this newfound concept of individual enlightenment. That's really something. I mean, I think that balance between individual awareness leading to an understanding of interconnectedness is really the fundamental basis for the idea of enlightenment in Buddhism. It also sort of seems to reflect the way the Grateful Dead scene operates. Like everybody finds their own path in and the transformation certainly happens within the individual. But at the same time, the pursuit of collective transcendence seems to be the modus operandi. Gate, gate, para gate, para sam gate, bodhisvaha. Gone, gone, gone beyond. Everyone gone beyond. Hooray! That's really a lovely way of describing it. And I think I would agree with that 100%. Oh, good. (laughs) You know, I was thinking right before you said that, that where we've sort of come in this conversation goes right back to where we started in the sense that, you know, you asked me when I got on the bus with with the Dharma, when I got on the bus with the Grateful Dead, and what I was describing to you was a you know, a life of, of Northeast privilege that, yeah. you know, maybe I had these things around me, but I it didn't click until I had suffering. And that's that's exactly what happened in the life of Buddha. That's exactly what was happening, I think, in the 60s. That's exactly what happens in the hero's journey. You know, you have to have a certain amount of privilege in order to quite literally contemplate your navel, right? <laughs> yeah. And you have to have a certain amount of privilege in order to appreciate the suffering and to sort of sit back and say, I embrace it as reality, but I'm going to look into it beyond consensus reality and see, you know, what its fundamental nature is and and try to change it. Sure. And by tuning in, turning on and dropping out, you're essentially flipping that privilege on its head and using it as a propellant on the path to awareness. One of the Buddha's other innovations within the context of Hinduism from which this all emerged was to reject that harsh asceticism. He went through it. He essentially punished himself. But then he said, no, this doesn't work and devised a middle way whereby in meditation, our normally discursive thoughts are allowed to settle and that basic awareness is revealed. In order to do that, you have to have the space and the time to meditate. And in Tibetan Buddhism, there's something called the four thoughts that turn the mind. One of those thoughts is 
this precious human life of leisure and opportunity. That doesn't mean be lazy. It means the opposite, but it means be thankful that you have the time to cultivate this practice. Yeah. And when you do, you start to notice that there are infinite creative possibilities. I kind of think that the Grateful Dead stumbled into some infinite creative possibilities as well when they first got together and took acid, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering, does that also connect to that counterculture of ancient India? What I think we're talking about clearly is this healthy mix of suffering and, and privilege. In the case of ancient India, what we had was a culture that was emerging from a long period of war. Power was consolidating between two superpowers, right? And so it was a stalemate. And in the stalemate, there was economic surplus, which meant you had an entire generation that could kind of fuck off a little bit. They could kind of like take it easy. They didn't have to rush out and get a job, right? <laughs> yeah. But there might have been widespread plague, ah. a kind of disease that affected all the classes and castes of India. Right. It's like the post-war boom, but also Vietnam. Exactly. So, you know, you've got the boomers sort of reeling the, the economic benefits of World War II and all of that. And then going into Vietnam, you've got all this sort of existential anxiety. You know, you have hippies losing their friends and people going off to die. It's very, very similar. And people checking out, going to the forest in India, it's very much the same as people in the 60s sort of checking out of conventional life and going off to follow the Grateful Dead. You know, the the forest in India, it was a specially demarcated space where taboo things were allowed to happen. You know, these things were not allowed to happen in mainstream society. Same with the dead, like that show, the acid test that became, you know, the Grateful Dead show. That's also a specially demarcated space where like taboo things were allowed to happen. And one of those taboo things was turning on through LSD. Hakim Bey would call them temporary autonomous zones. Yeah, I love it. Totally. And that was also happening in India. You know, maybe, uh, you know, it didn't permeate Buddhism until much later with Tantra. But most certainly that was happening within Hindu circles. You know, I'm a psychedelic Buddhist. And I'm a big fan of Mike Crowley, who wrote this book called Secret Drugs of Buddhism. And he argues that there's very good reason to believe that with the influence of Tantra in later Buddhism came potentially a ritualized use of, of plant-based psychedelics within Buddhism. Yeah, I think the flower ornament scripture alone bears that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's one of these things. It's a bit, you know, this happened with Hinduism and Soma, like... None of the Hindu scholars were sort of seeing the writing on the wall because culturally we've been brainwashed to sort of demonize drugs. And so, you know, in Hindu circles, there was a lot of confusion about what Soma was until Gordon Wasson, a Chase Bank employee, you know, and, and amateur mycologist figured this shit out, you know, I mean, but, but it's not surprising because he was out of the academic loop, like he was not drinking the academic Kool-Aid and he could read the writing on the wall. Sure, yeah. So I think the same thing's happening in Buddhism. Like, there's plenty of textual evidence that is very suggestive, and it's really surprising that there hasn't been more scholarship done on this. So, you know, Mike Crowley sort of stands out as one of those brave scholars who, you know, has risked his name and reputation going out on a limb. And you have an organization called Psychedelic Sangha that is bringing a lot of this psychedelic consciousness back into the conversation around Buddhism, as well as making it a legitimate aspect of practice. Can you tell us a little bit more about Psychedelic Sangha's overall aims? Yeah, so Psychedelic Sangha is a spiritual collective that aims to create 
community for psychedelic Buddhists and Buddhistic psychonauts. Mm. And what I mean by that is we're creating a space for misfits. <laughs> like maybe you're a Buddhist in a Sangha or a, you know, a spiritual community. Right. Uh, that's a Sanskrit word. And in, in Buddhism, it has a special significance because it's one of what's called the three jewels. Mm -hmm. um, so your Sangha is one of the things that you take refuge in when you become a Buddhist. So Sangha is important. And I think there are a lot of, particularly in America, a lot of American Buddhists who either found Buddhism through psychedelics, um, are experimenting with psychedelics and their Buddhism, or are very curious about that and lack the community support to do that. And what's worse, maybe feel persecuted and closeted within their present sangha, right? So we're not trying to like steal people from their sanghas. What we're trying to do is give psychedelic Buddhists a space for exploring psychedelics. And then on the other side, I think we have all these non-Buddhist or Buddhistic psychonauts who are already doing all that hard work with psychedelics, but lack the contemplative tools to really superpower their psychedelic experimentation. And they're sort of coming up against the wall and going, you know, what next? How do I get over this wall? And I think, you know, the contemplative tools and ideas that Buddhism has can be very helpful for those people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're really carving out this little niche for those two communities to sort of come together. We're not asking people that, you know, to give up their traditions. We are a non-tradition based tradition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I, I come at it from... Tibetan Buddhism, um, Eric Davis, my, my cohort over in San Francisco, he's more Zen. Spiros Antonopoulos down in LA, who's running a psychedelic Sangha there, he's more Hindu. You know, he's coming at it from that perspective. Brian James in Montreal, he just launched a psychedelic Sangha. He's also sort of spearheading a more Hindu flavor of things. Interesting. You know, there was that original psychedelic movement that overlapped immensely with the emerging Buddhist culture in the United States, but it seems like it got like put away for a long time. And it, it's really interesting to think that we could revisit that in a contemporary sense in a way that aids our understanding and practice. What we're doing in New York City with Psychedelic Sangha is really exciting. And I have a wonderful team and it consists of Killian Ganley, who is 73 years old and has been in the Dharma since 1974. So he's he's been a Buddhist for almost as exactly long as I have been alive. Nice. I think we're <laughs> the same age then. Ethan Covey is my other partner, and he's a newbie to Buddhism, but we have such a great chemistry between the three of us. Like we really complement each other where one is deficient, the other is strong. And we have done that thing that I know you're going to appreciate when I say this, that you know, it's like a rock band. Nice. We have found our flow. And that's been really instructive to me because as an academic, you know, like we are not trained to be team players. You know, we're trained to like <laughs> right. carve out a name for ourselves, you know, pick a dissertation that's going to put you on the map, you know, write a book that's going to put you on the map. Like nowhere in there is the big W we, you know, like it's all about me. And so I've had to learn to get out of the way and to really embrace this idea of a collective. And when I've done that, like, it's been just so rewarding because you feel that emerging, overarching thing that happens within any kind of superorganism, you know? And that seems like a dead friendly outlook right there. 
It's like Dogen Zenji, the first Japanese Zen patriarch, said, to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And I came across a quote from Jerry Garcia, who said, to forget yourself is to see everything else. To see everything else is to become an understanding molecule in evolution, a conscious tool of the universe. That, to me, seems like a real psychedelicized version of that same notion. Yes, and if I had to like tie together my Buddhism, my athleticism that I mentioned earlier, you know, if I had to tie in the Grateful Dead, if I even psychedelic Sangha in terms of what I've been saying as a collective and like a super organism, it is this sort of feeling that I always derive from the song, The Music Never Stopped, which is this idea of people coming together, forming some kind of spiritual community wherein something larger then the sum of its parts emerges. And I always think of that lyric, you know, people joining hand in hand while the music plays the band, right? The music plays the band. Like, it's not the individuals. It's something that only can occur through the coming together of all these pieces. Yeah, and legitimizing experiences that people might have that otherwise wouldn't have a place to be expressed. I had had a, a transformative psychedelic experience in college that really changed me and changed the orientation of my life. And it was all based on this one experience. And then I met the Dharma and they were like, yeah, yeah, you're on the right track, like keep going. But now you just have to, to do it the right way, which is sit on the cushion and earn your enlightenment, right? And I was like, okay, I, I, I get that. Like, you know, got a, you know, blood, sweat and tears here. Like I, I'm a jock, I can apply that, you know, to what I'm doing. And, um, but what do I do with all this sublime trauma? You know, what do I do with this psychedelic experience I had, which really seems to be the only direct perception I've ever had of any of these things they're talking about in the books, you know, like I can't not continue thinking about that. Right. It's an experience that you had. And to be honest, you got to earn your enlightenment no matter what. It's a process that's happening within you. Although I do recall some stories from that first wave of acid eaters in the 1960s who started to get into Buddhism and meditation. And there was one encounter that a tripper had with a Tibetan Lama and the Tibetan Lama got dosed somehow. And uh, the student asked, like, so what are you experiencing? And he was basically like, yeah, this is nothing. I've been here before. Of course, Vajrayana is a very colorful tradition. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm wondering, do you see your work as being reparative in any way? Like, are you trying to reconnect some of these long lost threads within Buddhism? What we're doing is actually very middle way, right? So if you look at the assimilation of psychedelics into American culture, like it seems maybe like a long history, but, you know, when you're looking at history in the big picture, like it, it hasn't even been a hundred years really, you know? So what I'm getting at is that the assimilation process goes through a honeymoon phase, which maybe it was the 60s. Then there's sort of the growing pains of marriage. There's maybe divorce. There's maybe, you know, a new marriage. There's maybe reunion with your old, you know, like there's there's change and we, we our relationship evolves. And so we are evolving from out of the, you know, propaganda on the war on drugs. 
and we are coming to a much more mature relationship with substance and also Buddhism. I think we are seeing in the second generation of American Buddhists a different relationship, a relationship where we feel maybe more entitled to improvise or to reinvent or to stake a claim on as truly our own. You know, I mentioned plant-based psychedelic use in ancient India, but that's one aspect of our lineage. The other aspect of our lineage is the 60s, is the chemical-based indigenous use of LSD as a, a part of the American Buddhist story. So, you know, we look to both of those as our origin story. You know, we look to Allen Ginsberg as a kind of spiritual friend, a Kalyana Mitra, somebody who informs our tradition. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's definitely a feeling that this is needed now, right? There's a resurgence in interest in the Grateful Dead and the cultures that they represent. But there's also an interest, and I would say, a need for us to engage in spiritual practices that in some way allow for compassion and a compassionate engagement with the rest of the human beings that we happen to share this planet with. It's part of evolution that we got ahead by forming these superorganisms, and so we have a kind of natural instinct for doing that. In other words, like we feel complete when we're part of something larger than ourselves. That's one thing that I think you can find at football games, you can find in the military, you can find in any situation where there's a there's a tribe, right? And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, well, you know, there's a fine line between, say, a tribe and a mob, right? Exactly, exactly. And what keeps it from, I think, becoming a mob or becoming some kind of fundamentalist head trip is the psychedelic experience and meditation. So if you're doing those two things, you're gonna keep your ego in check. Right. Now what we're preaching is not drugs, it's not meditation, it's the skillful integration of both of those things, which I think is very reflective of where we are in history. You know, when I was saying we had the honeymoon phase and we're, you know, we're going through all these different sort of periods of assimilation, like we are finally at the point where I think we can skillfully bring these two things together, both because of where we are in terms of legalization, where we are in terms of the scientific research, and where we are just in terms of the cultural collective. I certainly hope so. Uh, any practice that helps people cultivate kindness towards themselves and by extension, compassion for others is a worthwhile pursuit. Yeah, and I think therein you see also, you know, compassion arises through emptiness and dependent origination, right? Like you arrive at compassion when you deconstruct the self and then realize that the self can reemerge through interconnectivity. You know, like in other words, like meaning is derived from the interrelationship of all things. Real self-interest is when you engage in compassion, and and you're not going to get that until you actually do it. You know, when you're talking about the Grateful Dead experience, when you're talking about like hippie values, I do think they arrived at that by way of a dissolution of the ego and Again, this sort of tribal thing, like being in that context of a superorganism just naturally made compassion an overarching ideal within that community. And that's our show. Visit us online at deadtomepod.com, socials at deadtomepod. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.